Hello and welcome to the Bitcoin Takeover. I am Vlad and today my guest is Udi Wertheimer, who until very recently used to call himself a Bitcoin noob. But <laughs> we all know that he is a good developer and a very competent one and a big Bitcoin enthusiast who participates in many events that take place in Israel and not only his own country. And yeah. he is a participant of the Bitcoin embassy, which is a very interesting way of putting it, to call something an embassy of something. It, it, that bears the political meaning, right? Uh, yeah, I guess. I guess the, the, the Bitcoin embassy in Tel Aviv in Israel is, um, is kind of this open community, open source thing. It's not, you know, it's not code, but we call it open source because everyone can join, everyone can... Um, help direct where we're going with this um, and it's been running since long before I uh, I started you know getting excited about Bitcoin it's a pretty it's been going on for years now it's a very, it's really great place with great people it's it's like it's a physical location but also you know um, a lot of events that the embassy is doing like the recent uh, Bitcoin party we had in Tel Aviv, which was, I think, hosted over 10, over, no, over a thousand guests. Um, and also the full node workshop that we recently did, which was, um, we, we had people come over with their full, with like, you know, old PCs, old PC boxes or laptops. And we helped them install Linux for the first time. So it was the first time they used Linux. And we helped them install full nodes with Lightning and with Electron personal server and a whole host of things. And they came out with full nodes that they can actually can and do actually use. Um, so it was a lot of fun and it was very interesting too. So yeah, a lot of great events with the Bitcoin Embassy. But of all the places in the world where you could have these exciting Bitcoin related events, why do you think it's Israel? What is so special about your country? Is there like some kind of national policy which encourages new innovations and technology? Um, I mean, for sure, yeah. Um, there's, um, you know, there's a very, very uh, significant tech industry in Israel and in Tel Aviv and in Israel uh, in general. Um, and, you know, first of all, it's not just Israel. I, I know of um, multiple Bitcoin embassies around the world. Um, we're not like directly connected, but I would say inspired from each other. Um, and besides from that, yeah, I think that, yeah, Israel has like a, a significant tech community. It also has... Um, um, you know, uh, like a strong ideological community. So a lot of people in, in, who are interested in Bitcoin in Israel are, I find, maybe uh, more ideological than usually in many other parts in the world. So this is something that maybe sometimes surprises people. People are very, you know, feel very strongly about how they view Bitcoin. Um, and, and, you know, the, the role that they think Bitcoin has in the world. Um, I'm not sure why it is, why that is that way, but it's cool. I like it. <laughs> I also know that you recently had a conference in Tel Aviv, which was very special in the sense that it defied the trend of having blockchain-related conferences, and it was only about Bitcoin. And to this extent... You also actually had Nick Sabo and David Chom invited as guests who had panels and spoke. 
I know that Alena Vranova and Aaron Van Verdum of Bitcoin Magazine were part of the same panel. And also, you had your own panel, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we were very happy to have those people that you mentioned. Um, and we were also very happy to that, you know, that it was a Bitcoin conference and not a blockchain conference. I think that we're seeing more of this, I think, around everywhere in the world right now, because uh, a lot of the blockchain scams and frauds are kind of disappearing now because the money's gone. Right. So what's left is the more, you know, down to earth stuff and more um, technically competent stuff and the more ideological stuff too. So yeah, I'm definitely happy that we're going back to the roots. Um, and yeah, we all, I, we had like great panels and great talks there and I participated in a panel that was more about um, uh, kind of the Bitcoin community, both in Israel and outside of Israel and how we, we see it, which was interesting. Um, we also have the Scaling Bitcoin conference coming to Tel Aviv in September. Scaling Bitcoin is a very well-known, famous technical conference um, that's been running for years now and it's coming to Tel Aviv in September. So we're super excited about that. It's going to be, um, you know, a very great event and a great opportunity both for, you know, the, the Tel Aviv community to get to know uh, more of the international stuff and also for people from around the world to get to know the Tel Aviv community, which is really great. <clears throat> so, yeah, we're very happy about that. So given the nature and the history of scaling Bitcoin debates, you think that this year it will be about the block size, but instead of increasing it, it will be about decreasing it as proposed for the first time by LookDash? Um, well, so, so the Scaling Bitcoin conference started um, as this kind of uh, venue to try to get, get to some agreement about the block size debate. I guess this is what it was in the first years, kind of. I was less involved back then, so I'm not sure. But um, these days it's just, you know, it's still called Scaling Bitcoin, but mostly it's just a technical uh, conference that is not only um, about scaling, but pretty much about everything. And it's trying to not be, to, you know, not be a political thing or a debate thing, but more, you know, researchers that can come and talk about their, uh, their ideas and proposal and, and about their work. And then they have a few workshops where people can kind of, you know, discuss um, some of the ideas. But um, it's not really about making, being, you know, it's not really about debates or making decisions. Um, there are no decisions that can be taken in a conference. It's just, you know, it's a way for researchers and technical people to get together and to see what uh, people are working on. That's the main idea of it. I guess it's always interesting when researchers and developers get together and present ideas that maybe will never become part of the official protocol. They will never be implemented in Bitcoin Core, but they still prove to be useful in terms of inspiring others what to approach next and what to get in, involved in. At the same time, I think that it's not really these events that cause controversies but it's the media and maybe that I'm part of the problem right now because I work for a media outlet <laughs> but we tend to magnify these discussions and make them be something which grows out of proportions like I think it was recently the case with a Satoshi roundtable discussion where oh, yeah somebody mentioned something about 
the block size or the supply, either two of those, and then it was a huge outrage. Yeah, I think it was the supply thing. Yeah, um, I, I wasn't there, um, but so you know, I don't know what was actually said. But I think the the most important takeaway is that it doesn't matter what was actually said. You know, people are allowed to get together and and speak and have ideas. People are also allowed to have bad ideas, like like inflating the supply. I think it's a very bad idea, but it's you know it's inconsequential. People can talk about it, and there's no no reason to get mad about it. it was if if I remember correctly, it was just some you know a few people were sitting around at dinner or something like that, and someone brought up like you know it was an interesting discussion to to like an interesting subject to discuss, um, and it, it got completely out of proportion, you know. On social media and on on news and so on. So yeah, I think that it's you know it's a lot of noise about really nothing. Much ado about nothing, as Shakespeare yeah. would say. But yeah. do you think that it's healthy for this discussion to be held in a more organized way? And maybe that controversy is part of the immune system of Bitcoin. Oh yeah, I mean. Um, Yeah, one thing that um, I tend to say a lot in debates about um, the idea of inflating the supply is that, you know, when someone brings this idea up and usually people are getting very angry about it, um, that's a good thing. <laughs> the, the, the fact that people are getting angry about it is a good thing. That's the, the only reason that we the, the Bitcoin supply can't be inflated is because the community protects it like nothing else. So it's it's definitely the most protected feature and property of Bitcoin, and that's the way it should be. Um, if it wasn't that way, then I don't think there was any reason to be interested in Bitcoin at all. So, you know, whatever the, I, I don't know what the best inflation policy is, quote unquote, but it is what it is. And the, the, the important feature about Bitcoin is that it cannot change. Um, maybe it would have been better if it was set in another way in the beginning, but it was set to the way that it was. And the biggest feature about it is that it cannot change. So, yeah, um, we should be very happy that people are getting mad about this. I think it's a great thing. That being said, you know, uh, discussion is always good. And I can understand why some people um, looking at this do not understand immediately, um, especially people who are not necessarily in Bitcoin. Um, maybe they don't understand immediately why this is important. It's fine and, and important to discuss. And it's also important that people kind of retaliate about it. I think it's not, you know, it's not a bad thing. It's great. Yeah, I, I want to get back for a minute to Israel and ask you something which I usually ask all the guests. What is it like to live with Bitcoin in Israel? Can you actually get paid in Bitcoin and make a decent living and actually make payments <laughs> with it? Or did it, uh, I think I've read a recent article in Bitcoin magazine and one of their writers tried to live with Bitcoin in San Francisco. And mm -hmm. he actually discovered that there are far less merchants who accept Bitcoin now than they were in 2014. And I'm not sure mm. if that's just a Silicon Valley trend or it's worldwide that merchants start to lose faith in Bitcoin one way or the other. Yeah. Um, so let's see. So the first question is, do people actually get paid with Bitcoin? So, you know, I, 
I sometimes get paid with Bitcoin, um, but maybe that's because I kind of, you know, I kind of work in the field. So whenever I work with a client, they usually, you know, they already know what Bitcoin is and they're probably doing something with Bitcoin. So it's natural and makes sense for them to pay with Bitcoin. I'm not sure if it's, you know, if someone is, um, you know, doing any kind of uh, regular people work, which is not someone who is crazy like me then um, I don't know if it's as popular for people to accept Bitcoin, but um, I know it happens, you know, I know, I know people who kind of really leave off just Bitcoin, you know, they get paid with Bitcoin for whatever they do. Um, and they try to, you know, not have a bank account and use Bitcoin only. And it doesn't, you know, they do have to sometimes um, like buy, you know, the local currency, which is the Israeli shekels. Um, because of course not everyone accepts Bitcoin as payments for anything. Um, a lot of people do not. Most people do not. So so yeah, people do have some to sometimes convert to uh, fiat currency. But you know, um, it's it's one, it's doable, and two, um, I think it's fine. You know, I, I I I don't recall who it was with. I had a recent kind of argument with someone about this. Um, you know, it makes sense that that people, you know, you can't, being only Bitcoin doesn't mean that you have to eat your own Bitcoins and wear your own, your own Bitcoins. You will probably have to convert them to other things like food and like clothes and, you know, a house. So you can't just live with just your Bitcoin. And if in the way you have to convert them to fiat, that makes sense too. Um, you know, a lot of people are like kind of digital nomads, right? And they, you know, they, they, move from country to country. So, you know, if someone has US dollars, maybe they won't accept it where, where they go to and they will have to convert it to the local currency. It doesn't mean that their dollars are not money, right? So yeah, um, there's this community of Bitcoiners that will accept Bitcoin as payment with each other. And there are some businesses that will accept Bitcoin payments. Um, and if not, then you'll have to convert to another currency first. That's fine. Um, you know, people do, there are people who prefer to live that way. So, yeah, <clears throat> most people don't, you know, most people have Bitcoin um, as some sort of an investment and also have a bank account. And they, you know, if they get paid with Bitcoin, they convert most of it to fiat or maybe they're not, they don't get paid with Bitcoin at all. So, yeah, you have all kinds of things. Yeah, I've actually had this conversation. It wasn't really a conversation, but a tweet exchange with Peter Todd, and we came to this agreement that actually Bitcoin needs fiat to exist and you need to do quick swaps as a very good way to retain privacy and fungibility. As mm -hmm. when you purchase something with Bitcoin, you inevitably leave traces and people know that you have used it and they can trace your IP, they can look to the public keys that you posted and maybe look for some links. So it's easy to tell that it was you who bought something. But when you exchange with somebody in fiat, you bypass all that KYC AML requirements. So it's useful to do this kind of local Bitcoin meetings. And maybe if somebody wants to buy, you can do a quick swap in fiat. And then you just go to the grocery store, which maybe doesn't even accept credit cards and you just buy whatever you need. And then if you want, you can buy back 
this is useful for communities to exist and have these exchanges. And also it's useful for fiat to continue to exist as opposed to Bitcoin as it's highly inflationary and we need to have this type of antagonist all the time so that we can point out to the flaws in monetary policy and <laughs> know what to avoid on one hand, but also point at the enemy. That, that always works in any type of ideology or establishment. You need like an antagonist. Superman yeah, can... needs Lex Luthor, Bitcoin needs fiat. Yeah, you, you walk around with an ugly friend so that you can look better. Yeah. Exactly. That, that's why hot <laughs> chicks have a fat friend. Not, not that there's anything wrong with being fat, and I don't want to get all that backlash, but it's something that happens. Maybe, maybe. I mean, um, the, the thing about privacy, uh, that's interesting because, I mean, yeah, it's definitely just paying with cold hard cash is probably more private than paying with Bitcoin in most cases. Um, but, you know, things are getting better and it's becoming simpler to use Bitcoin privately um, lately, uh, at least to some degree of privacy. Um, Lightning is pretty great for that. I, when I make Bitcoin payments, um, I actually find using Lightning like a ton of fun. Um, and also, um, you know, it kind of makes me feel easier about using Bitcoin because I know that it's not registered forever on some, uh, on some ledger that everyone can look at. Um, you know, not that I have anything in particular to hide, but it's just nicer to know that not everyone in the world can know, you know, what, what I like to eat and, you know, so on. So, so that's nice. Um, with Lightning, you get much better privacy properties usually. Um, and, well, it's still early and there are probably some, you know, vulnerabilities that could be used to de-anonymize people. Um, you know, it's going to get better. So I'm very optimistic about that. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not sure that people will have to use cash to, to get meaningful privacy for when using Bitcoin. Yeah, you're right about the increased privacy that we are seeing. But... I've had John Carvalho in the first season of the podcast, and he explained to me, I'm not sure if it was in the podcast or in the conversation that we had after, but he mm -hmm. explained to me that there is no way for Bitcoin to ever become fungible because every unit that gets issued through mining bears a certain timestamp. So you know where it comes from and when it was created. And if, for instance, Coinbase, becomes an enemy of Bitcoin and decides that they will stop accepting any Bitcoin that was issued before, say, 2014 and associate every Bitcoin before that with Silk Road, they can actually do that and censor you. Um, well, I mean, it's, it's, there's some truth to that, but um, it's not as easy as I think uh, some people sometimes make it up to be. Um, you know, if, if Coinbase just wanted to say all Bitcoins mined before 2014 are invalid or we won't accept them, they're probably not going to be able to do that um, without getting a lot of false positives, right? So they would have a lot of coins that they wouldn't be able to tell um, uh, because the way, you know, the way Bitcoin works, you have coins sometimes merging and splitting. So it's hard to tell, you know, it's not just a straight line there sometimes coins that are merged with other or sometimes coins split. So it's hard to find 
um, you know, this coin was mined in so-and-so because uh, it's not exactly how it works. Um, one way to think about it is that in one transaction, um, all Bitcoins are fungible. So let's say you make one transaction. Um, this is actually something that I read um, on, on a, an article by Chris Belcher, which is, uh, I never thought about it like this before. So um, if you have a transaction and you have multiple inputs going into this transaction and multiple outputs going out of the transaction, so the Bitcoins in the transaction, they're fungible, you can't differentiate them. So, you know, let's say three people put coins in a transaction, or maybe you're the only one who put coins in a transaction, but you use multiple inputs of yours and coins are going out to four different people. So there's no way to know which one got which. It's they're completely fungible inside the transaction. So <clears throat> that means that you can take old coins and new coins and you know, mix them together and there's no way to tell who got which. So either, so if you're, you know, if you're trying to like ban all coins before 2014, then either you're going to get a lot of false positives, like a ton, or you just can't do it. So, um, and it's, you know, it's, it's a very um, uh, arbitrary rule, right? Probably no one will try to do that, but it's going to be hard. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. it, yeah, it's, a lot it of can sense. be better. Yeah, when you put it like this, it makes a lot of sense. And yeah, it's difficult to implement, but it's still feasible. And somebody out there, if they want to be bad actors in the space and play cops, they can do it, I guess. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. And we already see people doing it, right? We already see how, um, you know, Coinbase used to sometimes ban accounts because they received uh, coins that look like they might have come from dark markets. They can't know for sure, but look like they might have come from dark markets. Or maybe someone bought coins and sent them to a gambling site or what looks like a gambling site, so they closed their account. So yeah, th those are things that they sometimes do. Um, but um, if people are more careful and use... Um, you know, services like Wasabi and Join Market and a whole host of other things you can do, really. Then you can make the um, heuristics that companies like Coinbase use um, a lot less efficient to the point that either they can't, you know, they can't uh, ban you or they will just ban so many people on false positives that they will have to stop. And it seems like, you know, when you talk to people at companies like, um, you know, blockchain analysis companies like Chainalysis and others that analyze uh, transactions and, and give this information to exchanges like Coinbase. So when you talk with people on companies like this, they will usually tell you that when, you know, when someone uses something like Wasabi or any privacy tool, they will, you know, they will not even try to figure out what's going on with it. You know, maybe they will just say this is suspicious because this person used wasabi so it's suspicious but they're not going to try to figure out what actually happened because it's too hard for them and they have lower hanging fruit so they get just you know they're, they're just gonna have just gonna leave it alone at least for now so it's it's a pretty good tool for people if they want to avoid you know getting blamed for things they didn't do um so yeah so would you recommend everybody to use wasabi wallet to coin join their bitcoin 
Um, so, so here's the thing. If you use Wasabi, um, you know, let's say you go on an exchange, you bought some Bitcoins, then you sent them into Wasabi and you mixed your coins. Um, the exchange will probably, you know, the exchange you, you bought your coins at will probably be able to tell that you mixed them later. And one day, if you want to sell the coins on an exchange, on a regulated exchange, they might be asking you some questions. They might ask why, you know, why did you mix the coins? Why didn't you just hold them and send them on? And that might be a problem, although, you know, I, I, there, there's, no, I, there's no legal case I'm aware of of anyone who said, no, you're not allowed to, to mix your coins or this is money laundering or whatever. So I, my, I'm not a lawyer, I'm not an, an accountant, but it feels like to me that if you're able to keep records for yourself, right? And you can show that what you've done is legitimate and you didn't do anything wrong. Then when the time comes that you want to sell your coins, you'll be fine if you, you're able to prove that you didn't do anything wrong. Um, so, you know, that's, in that case, you shouldn't be worried about mixing your coins. I think it should be fine. Of course, I can't promise. But the thing is, the more people who do that, you know, the more people who um, protect their privacy and the more it becomes common, then the harder it becomes for um, regulators to say it's wrong and it's something that people are not allowed to do because if everyone does that, you know, you can't say that it's illegal. <laughs> so um, I'm kind of optimistic about it. The, the reason to use Wasabi is not, you know, I wouldn't recommend that someone who wants to do any criminal activity would use Wasabi because, the, you know, I don't recommend doing criminal activity and also... I'm not sure that it can protect you from uh, a very determined adversary. But um, if all you want to do is to keep your privacy from your friends, from your family, from people around you, from the businesses that you interact with, you know, if you're a business and you're using Bitcoin, you probably want to keep privacy as, you know, as commercial secret. You don't want to, we don't want everyone to know who you're doing business with and when and with what amounts and so on. It's, it's very natural to want to have some privacy. So um, I don't think it's doing anything wrong. And yeah, I think that while people should be responsible and, and understand what they're doing, I do think that it's a very good solution for many of the privacy problems in Bitcoin and that, yeah, people should definitely very seriously consider using Wasabi for their coins. What I usually think about it is that we are like in the days when people were sending telegrams and the telegrams were not private in any way. You could just read what's written on them. And sometimes yeah. to have some kind of privacy, the senders would sometimes use some kind of coded language that only the recipient was able to understand. But when they maybe standardized to letters and they were sending letters which were enclosed and protected by an envelope that nobody could open there was also a seal of some sort then nobody was really asking questions in terms of what do they have to hide so if everybody uses privacy then it becomes the norm and if that's the norm then you're not going to have special assumptions that the people using it are criminals and you're going to develop means that allow you to discern from all the huge amount of transactions and tell which ones are actually malevolent among them. Yes, definitely. I, I fully agree. Um, 
And, and actually, you know, if people do not take any care about, um, you know, privacy hygiene right now, then it's actually worse than sending like an open telegram um, because, you know, it's not just, you know, it's not just the carrier who can read your uh, letters. It's like everyone. <laughs> so even, even someone who didn't, wasn't anywhere around it can still see what you've done. So it's obviously, you know, it's obviously a very, very bad um, setting and I think it's it should be extremely obvious that people would want to you know get their privacy back and that there's no way that you know you can say that people who want some privacy from from the people around them are criminals you know you just want some very basic privacy about how you manage your financials and people deserve that so I think I think that everyone can understand that you know I think that Regulators can understand that. I think that the authorities can understand that. It's, you know, it's very reasonable in my opinion. Yeah, and privacy is essential for us to actually fulfill the purpose of Bitcoin. I know a lot of people who think that it should always be open and you should be able to track all the transactions and that's a feature. But as we know, Bitcoin comes from a long line of cypherpunk inventions. And part of the cypherpunk ethos, at least the way it was presented by Tim May and the cyphernomicon, it was that privacy comes first and is the most essential of all the purposes of anything related to the cypherpunk culture. And if you have to choose between compliance with laws and privacy in itself, then you're going to choose privacy even when you defend criminals. I think that's, in a nutshell, what Tim May wrote and if Satoshi was a cypherpunk, and I, I like to think that he was, then maybe he envisioned some kind of system which was also meant to be private. And if we were able throughout time to find other ways to make it more private than he left it to us, then I guess that's a legitimate use. But the idea of Bitcoin goes hand in hand sometimes with the concept which was actually invented by banks of, of cashless society a society where yeah. you no longer have to use cash and you have it all digitized. And I guess this vision is much more fitting with all the ICOSTO tokenized market or whatever. Yeah. And it's terrible when Bitcoin gets mixed and stuck in the same narrative with these inventions, which clearly serve a different purpose and are actually a way of digitizing something which is physical. Well, Bitcoin is a different animal, or I don't know how to describe it. Oh, yeah, I agree. I mean, um, you know, it's, uh, the, the real meaning of, of cashless society and, and having all uh, financial activity digital is that, you know, people want to use that to track um, the way that people use money. Um, it's not... Now, it's not about convenience, it's not about security, it's not about any of these things. It's not even, and it's not even a secret, right? That's like kind of the uh, intended announced goal when, when governments talk about cashless society. They, they don't want people using cash because they think, um, you know, it's too private and too anonymous. So, um, yeah, that's, that's, I think that, um, you know, at least most Bitcoiners I know, um, that's not something that they want, right? They, they definitely want uh, Bitcoin to retain privacy and to allow people to interact privately with each other. Um, I think it's very important. Um, and yeah, 
Yeah, I mean, I don't know about the, the Satoshi part. The, you know, the interesting thing about the white paper, uh, he left like a pretty small section about privacy. Um, I think it was very short. Um, and he basically said, uh, yeah, there might be some privacy problems, so you should uh, generate a new address every time, and, and that's it. And it wasn't very well thought out. You know, it's, it's true that people should use a new address every time and not reuse addresses, but that's not enough for privacy, and the white paper doesn't really go into the, any of that. So, you know, I, I, I'm not sure what Satoshi thought, but the nice thing is that it really doesn't matter what Satoshi thought, um, you know, He's not here anymore. And even if he was, Bitcoin is not Satoshi's. It belongs to everyone. So, yeah, um, I think it will do what the community wants it to do. So, yeah. Yeah, and the whole idea of a cashless society, at least in my understanding, is very Orwellian, as you have a third party which knows all the time where you spend your money, where you go, what you do, what time you're awake, what your preferences are. Uh, that's terrible. Yeah, yeah, I fully agree. I hope Bitcoin can save us. That's also my expectation that maybe that us Bitcoiners can actually establish a different kind of paradigm which opposes this idea that banks have. And it's very convenient for banks to know everything about you and profile you and know where you go and what you spend your money on. And it's also terrible that nowadays we are seeing the state of what should i call it institutionalization for bitcoin where you have nation states and you have businesses that become payment processors and all sorts of businesses which ask for your personal details whenever you make a payment yeah you can maybe mine bitcoin right now and you get the coins in a private way that nobody really knows that they belong to you, or you can buy them from a miner or something and avoid exchanges. But sooner or later, if you use your Bitcoin to purchase, then they're going to associate the the transaction with your wallet. Yeah. Um, Yeah. And, and, you know, I mentioned before the article from Chris Belcher, um, uh, he he uh, he's a you know he he's a developer who was involved in uh, Join Market, which is a, a privacy solution that is um, you know using CoinJo- CoinJoin, which is related to Wasabi. So it's another project, but it uses similar technologies. Um, and he also built Electrum Personal Server, which allows people to use Electrum Wallet in a more private way. So he knows he knows his stuff. And he just released a, a very long article on, on the Bitcoin wiki that he just titled, you know, privacy. And there's a ton of information there on different attacks that people can do on, you know, on, on privacy of users and, pe- and, and mistakes that people can do that will uh, leak data and also ways that people can kind of protect themselves. Um, and he goes, you know, very much in depth into this idea of, of exchanges that, you know, that can de-anonymize users and how people will be forced to use them. Um, but also, you know, there's also, um, you know, Bitcoin 
was okay before there were exchanges at all, right? So um, people still traded Bitcoin, um, you know, on IRC channels and face-to-face and so on. So it's, it's possible. And I believe people will continue doing that. Um, and if, you know, if, if it becomes, you know, if it becomes harder to, to get Bitcoin in a privacy, private, privacy respecting way through exchanges, then I expect that more people will try other ways to get Bitcoin and that's fine. Um, I heard Peter Todd mention once that cash is important because in order, you know, if, if things like exchanges are getting, uh, hostile to your privacy, then you will want to use cash to get Bitcoin. And if, you know, if like governments completely eradicate cash, then that's going to be hard. And that's true. Um, I think Bitcoin, you know, the Bitcoin economy does in a way um, depend on the existence of cash in the world. I think that's definitely important. So, um, so yeah, we, we kind of need it. And I hope though that, you know, just the kind of, you know, the Bitcoin community kind of presents an alternative to the, you know, to the traditional financial industry. And I hope that just the existence of the alternative, if it, if it manages to survive and if it sticks along and, and, and it still works uh, years from now, then I hope that just the existence of this alternative will kind of, um, you know, make it harder for uh, governments and so on to, uh, to be very hostile because they'll know that if people, you know, if you'll get tired of it, they'll just move completely to Bitcoin, which offers an alternative. So sometimes just the existence of an alternative, even if the alternative isn't perfect or even the alternative is difficult to use, just the existence of it um, can help making the traditional stuff more easier to bear. So, yeah, I hope that's, that, that's like a, a good outcome, I think, in my opinion, if this happens. Do you ever stop and wonder at night what if we are the bad guys or we are on the wrong side of history? Um, <laughs> doesn't everyone? <laughs> yeah, I mean, you, you could make that case. Um, but, you know, that's, that's probably something you could make the case about everything. Um, I don't know. Um, I, I really don't feel that way. You know, I think that, um, again... It's, it's mostly the, the alternative thing that, that drives me. I think that um, we deserve it to ourselves and to, you know, humanity, to our children and to our families. We, we owe it to keep Bitcoin alive because it can be used as an alternative if things go wrong. And if things don't go wrong, you know, and if, we're, if it's proven that we're just, you know, we're just overzealous about something that doesn't matter, then it's fine. It's not that bad. The worst thing we someone could say is that we wasted our time and efforts. Um, um, but I think that the risk that things do go bad is important enough for us to keep Bitcoin going as, as this alternative. Um, I think it's very important. I think that there are I don't, some, a lot of times in history where if people were able to you know, grab their Bitcoins and run away from the government, that could have been very useful. Um, and it's unfortunate that it wasn't possible for some people in the past. So, yeah, I think that just this alone makes everything worth it, in my opinion. I think my current understanding of Bitcoin, because maybe it's also the case with you, but from time to time, I realize that I don't agree with what I used to think. But right oh, now, yeah. I, I see it more as a collectible than as a currency. 
And I think of it like it's one of these rare items that maybe are very old and they become much more valuable in time the more you hold them and they are in good condition. And in this case, I guess good condition means that it's not associated with some kind of Silk Road business. But then yeah. again, there is no way for you to really know this. And I guess the checks go five step, steps back in terms of transactions or something. But uh, yeah, some, some number, yeah. Anyway, I, I don't think that Bitcoin right now is the peer-to-peer -peer electronic cash that maybe the Bitcoin cash side tries to emphasize on or Satoshi's vision or whatever. And I think that the store of value component is essential. And the main purpose of Bitcoin should be to deliver the kind of transaction that cannot be censored or stopped by the government. That's the whole purpose. Otherwise, it's just PayPal 2.0. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, f first of all, I definitely agree that, um, you know, my, my personal view on Bitcoin changed a lot over the years. And, and I think a lot of people share that. Um, opinion. That's that's sort of what I meant when I when I was calling myself a Bitcoin noob, because um, I think it's important it's important to realize that um, you know we don't know everything, and it's very likely that our perception will change and that we will learn new things. Um, so we should embrace that, um, and and in that way, I think we're all noobs. Um, but you know, it's also um, the way I understand Bitcoin is that, you know, it is what it is. Um, it's, its main feature is that it's very difficult, or if not impossible, to change. Um, and that's, you know, that's its main distinguishing property as a digital asset. Um, other digital assets are trivial to change. Bitcoin is extremely difficult to change. Um, so that's what makes it special. And because that's what it is, um, it's very likely that we, you know, we will think some things and over time we will realize that we were wrong and we won't be able to change Bitcoin because we had another idea. It is what it is and it's going to continue being what it is. And the best we can do is to try to find uh, uses for what it is and to help it stick along. So, yeah, I, I fully agree with you that as a store of value and as something that is censorship resistant, um, this is like... Uh, the, the, the special useful things that it can do that other assets aren't guaranteed to be able to do in the future. Um, and that's, you know, probably what we should focus on because this is what, you know, what it's good at. We shouldn't be trying to make it things that it's not. And I, I still want people to be able to use Bitcoin as, as a mean of payment for small things. And I hope that things like lightning and, and other stuff too will help with that. But, um, yeah, that's why I very, very strongly object to any attempt to change Bitcoin um, at its base layer just to, to support um, something that it's not, you know, it's never going to be great at. You know, Bitcoin is never going to be great, as great as Venmo for sending money to your friend. Um, it can't, you know, it's never going to be as good as, as that. It's as fast, as cheap, and so on. So... That's not what we what we should try to compete on in my in my idea. Yeah, and also uh, I think I know this by reading the articles of Nick Sabo on the history of money, and he also has a very interesting one 
on the history of non-governmental currencies. I think it's a mere coincidence that Bitcoin happens to be an online currency at the same time when we have all this influx of virtual currencies. And it's also maybe a confusion that some people have in their minds and think oh, yeah. that yeah. they associate e-currency or digital currency with Bitcoin, which is a cryptocurrency. And these concepts are very different. And would you elaborate and explain why they're different? I, I even have a friend who works at the OECD and she, oh. I hope that she's not listening, but <laughs> she, she told me a year ago that she's very interested in virtual currencies like Bitcoin for money laundering purposes. And that's what the kind of task that she was assigned. And I told her, oh, no, I don't think you should look into Bitcoin at this point if you want to discover money laundering and prime activities. It's more likely that you find these in Monero and Zcash and privacy coins, which actually allow you to remain anonymous. Well, it's, 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 um, it's more likely that you, you know, that you can find it in Fortnite than that you're going to find it in, uh, in many of these other cryptocurrencies. Um, people, people will use whatever is available for them um, for money laundering and so on. You know, they will use the financial corridors that are available and they don't care about the technicalities of it. They, they only care about getting away with it and getting the most value out of it. So, um, and, and it's not necessarily going to be Bitcoin or Monero Zcash. Uh, usually it's not because uh, it's, you know, it's not, it's not that easy to liquidate. The, obviously the, sh the smaller coins aren't very easy to liquidate um, and it's not that easy to move around. Um, so yeah, people use a lot of methods to launder money, you know, gift cards and, and you know, all, all, a, whole, a, whole, a host of payment methods. And I, I don't think that Bitcoin ranks very high on that list at all, um, or cryptocurrencies. It's, um, there's a lot of FUD, but you know, I'm, not, I'm not sure that's the first thing that people should be worried about. It's one of the things for sure, but it's not, you know, it's, I, I really don't think it's anywhere near being the first thing that people should be worried about if you're worried about uh, money laundering. Um, yeah, and also, you know, if we bring up something like Fortnite, so, so yeah, I think a lot of people, um, kind of confuse, you know, if they're outside of the Bitcoin community, then they kind of confuse Bitcoin with things like in-game currencies and things like uh, Farmville and, and, and Fortnite in modern days. Um, it sounds like it's the same, right? You, you have points that are some kind of a coin and you can buy things with them. It sounds like for an outsider, it sounds like it's the same thing and it couldn't be more different, right? It, says, it almost has nothing in common with those things. Um, so, so yeah, I think that, you know, the mainstream has a long time before they truly understand what Bitcoin is. We don't fully understand what Bitcoin is. So I think the mainstream will, has a long time before they get it. Um, and it's fine. You know, I think that um, I, I actually tweeted about it recently. I think that a lot of people are um, very concerned about um, making Bitcoin or cryptocurrencies easier to use for the mainstream. Um, I feel like it's kind of this uh, bag holder mentality that you want to pass the bag on to some to someone new, and you want to do you know you know you want to as fast as possible make it easy for as much people as possible to come in so that you can sell your uh, your bags uh, for a high price. 
And I, I don't care about that at all, actually. I'm, I'm fine if it takes a long time. Uh, I think that you know, the mainstream will show up when they need us. When they need Bitcoin, they will show up. Until then, you know, it's, just, it's just speculation and it's, um, there's no use making things simpler if people don't need it. So um, when they will need it, and I do believe that many people will need it in the future, um, then they will come to us. And our, our job is to survive until that happens. That's, you know, that's the goal. And to survive, we need to strengthen you know, the internal Bitcoin community to make sure that people understand how, you know, how to make the most of their Bitcoins, how to keep it strong, how to use full nodes instead of some custodial wallet, um, <coughs> and to make sure that the, the, you know, the network of Bitcoin is strong, the network effects are strong, and, and that Bitcoin stays um, stays as it is and isn't changed by outside forces until, you know, until it can be of greater service for the rest of the people of the world. Uh, that's, 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 you know, that's, I think this is the best thing we could do. Um, so that's what I'm focused on, what I care about. Do you think that we are wrong? I mean, we as a whole community, and I know that this is a very div divisive term as some people believe themselves to be just independent actors who sometimes happen to agree with some people, but generally disagree with most people. But it doesn't matter what you refer to generally. This is about the whole narrative that used to be prevalent in Bitcoin that we don't need banks and we reject this whole financial system. And then we, we have this part of the Bitcoiners who are very anxious and can't wait for one of the ETFs to get approved and see it as the next logical step in terms of adoption. But I think to them, it's more like an expectation to dump their bags on somebody. So if it becomes very easy for people to buy Bitcoin, but I'm not sure if they will actually hold the coins with ETFs. It's just like, what yeah. do you call it? Like a bond or something? Yeah, so um, that's that's an interesting question because um, I think there are a lot of, you know, kind of factions and a lot of kind of ideas um, of people about Bitcoin. And many people bought Bitcoin and other digital assets only as a speculative vehicle and they don't intend to stick around very long and they just want to liquidate and move on to something else and they hope to you know make as much profit as possible while doing that and that's fine i mean that's not a use case that anyone should be against but um you know it's not it's it, it is what it is but it's not very helpful or very interesting for um ideologically, right? So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's understandable if someone wants the ETF to, to pass through because they think they, it will allow them to sell their Bitcoins for a high price. Um, but it, again, in the grand scheme of things, I don't think it matters that much. So, you know, one day, one of these days, we will have an ETF. It might be, I don't think it will be this year, but maybe might be in one year, in two years, in five years, but at some point, it will, it's probably going to happen. So, um, you know, whatever, right? Um, people who hold Bitcoin long term, I don't think they care about it that much. Um, you know, it is what it is. I do think that it makes sense for some people to want to have 
um, exposure to Bitcoin, even if they're not Bitcoiners themselves, right? They, they don't care about um, ideology. They don't care about any of this stuff. They just think that Bitcoin, you know, they think that enough of other people care about it that eventually the Bitcoin price will go up and they want to have exposure to that, but they don't care about anything else. And that's fine. I mean, that's perfectly fine. If people think that and want that, you know, go ahead. So an ETF is a good tool for them. And at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what we think, right? It's, it's going to happen. You know, if people, if there's demand, it's going to happen. If there's no demand, then it's not going to happen. And that's it. Um, you know, that's the nice thing about Bitcoin, that people can do whatever they want with it. And it doesn't matter what people on Twitter think, right? That's the great thing. So, yeah, I'm, I'm ambivalent about it, but I'm happy that people can do whatever they want. That's, that's useful. <coughs> what do you think about it? I don't know. I'm torn when it comes to it. On one hand, I can understand that there is a lot of expectation or there are lots of expectations regarding the price action. And there are lots of miners who are very self-interested and can't wait to actually make some money from their activity. I know that some of them are running at a loss at this price today. And some of them have shut down their operations. And they probably expect every opportunity for more money to come into the space. And it's not going to happen until the mainstream media picks up stories about new highs in terms of price. So it's a vicious cycle which comes down to price, even though a lot of us like to say that we don't care about the price. The adoption itself that depends on how well the price action is doing. And it's also, have you seen that graph with, um, um, I think it's called the dick, whatever. (laughs) Decline. Decline. Yeah, those the expectation according to John McAfee's prediction. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. He, he doesn't look very good for him right now. No, it doesn't. But he's trying to run for president, and part, part of me <laughs> yeah. thinks that he wants to get on stage and tell people to buy Bitcoin on national <laughs> television, so he saves his own dick. <laughs> Yeah, I, I don't think he's going to follow through with it either way. I'm pretty sure he's not. <laughs> but yeah. Um, yeah, you know, it's, um, I wouldn't say that people, you know, I know people sometimes say that they don't care about price. I guess saying we don't care about it is kind of exaggerated. It's not that, you know, it's not that I don't care about it. It's just that short term, um, you know, if we have like six months where the price goes crazy, I don't think it changes a lot, you know. Um, I care about the long term more than I do about the short term when it comes to Bitcoin. Um, and, and yeah, you know, whatever temporary price movements and craziness we get, I don't think it's that interesting. Then again, you know, we shouldn't reject price action and speculators as something that is bad. It's not bad. Uh, it's one, it's natural, and two, it's useful because. You know, that, that what, you know, if you don't have speculators that buy Bitcoin uh, and hold it, then Bitcoin won't have a price, obviously. That's true for um, most type of assets. So, you know, you need these kind of people to do this and it's perfectly fine. And this is how economies work. So, you know, that's, you know, it's perfectly normal. We, we shouldn't try to reject it in some way. Um, so, yeah, you know, 
It'll be fine. I, I don't care that much about the ATF personally. Um, I guess we'll get there at some point. I don't know. Yeah, but I think the essential part, and this is where the division comes in, is that we don't want to let the speculators take over and have their way implemented on the protocol itself. As I oh, think yeah. It was the case with bigger blocks. I mean, two megabytes, it's not such a big deal. We have had two megabytes with SegWit. Yeah. In theory, it doesn't sound that bad. It's, SegWit2x wasn't such a bad idea in itself, but it was about dividing the community and setting a precedent. And when you increase the block size, you have done it and you have a precedent and you can come back next year and say, oh, it wasn't enough. How about we double it? And then it, yeah. it turns into a vicious cycle where the average user will be unable to run a node and it will be only the miners who do it. And they take, they take over the network and it's all about what they want to do. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's also about risk assessment. Um, I think it's not inconceivable that we would have to hard fork for some reason someday, um, maybe to make things better and maybe because of some emergency. Um, it's not inconceivable that this will sometime happen. But uh, you, you have to weigh the risks, you know, and in something like raising the block size uh, to double the size, it's just, you know, the benefits here are really unclear. You know, we didn't do it and we're just fine right now, right? And if we'll have to raise the block size at some later point, fine. But it doesn't look like it was ever very urgent. And I think it's a very good thing that we didn't raise the block size just because we had like a month or two of, of uh, um, non-standard activity, you know? So if we, we would do all that just for two months, uh, that would be very wrong. And, and there are real risks, risks involved, not just for bugs and vulnerabilities, like they actually had bugs, serious bugs in the Segway2x implementation. But it's not just that. It's also, you know, when you do something like that, you're pretty much guaranteed that there's going to be a fork and a split and that there's going to be a drama around it. And it's usually not worth it. I'm not saying it's never going to be worth it, but it's usually not going to be worth it. In this case, it certainly wasn't worth it. Um, and as you say, you know, you don't want to set a precedent where over every little thing we, we risk everything. So, yeah, um, that's, I, I, it made me very optimistic about Bitcoin when, uh, when Segwit2x got rejected. Uh, I think it was a very good thing. It said a lot... Um, about Bitcoin's resilience, and I'm definitely very happy about it. So, yeah. You know what I like the most about Bitcoin? I think the earliest vision of the commercial internet that we have now, the World Wide Web, which was created by Sir Tim Berners-Lee at the CERN, mm -hmm. was that everybody would be able to run their own server and store their own information and actually own it physically. Probably. And yeah. that never happened. And in order for the internet to scale, they had to give up and create these centralized industrial complexes, which host your emails, host your data, and you basically pay them to do your work. And that's not something yeah. that we allowed to happen with Bitcoin. 
We still yeah. like the idea that people should run their own nodes to validate their transactions, but also help the network. And yeah. we also like the idea of proof of work where anybody can participate into mining and you have giants like Bitmain, which seemed impossible to take on a couple of years ago, but right now they are collapsing and they leave the room for somebody else to step in and do the same which is incredible. That's not something that you're going to see in proof of stake. Oh yeah. And proof For of stake, sure. you, you just have the rich getting richer all the time, just because they are rich. And yeah. Some people accept it just on grounds that it's friendlier with the environment or it requires. Well, uh, a yeah. Until amount. something breaks, until something breaks and then everyone becomes poor. But yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's yeah. more central control in these entities. But I, I like this uncompromising nature of Bitcoin. And just so you know, today my Casa node has arrived and I haven't opened it yet because I want to film the unboxing and everything. Oh, nice. And I'm very excited just with the idea that I will be able to simultaneously with one device run my full Bitcoin node and run a Lightning node and open channels. Uh, that's incredible to know. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's a fun little device and it's, uh, you know, I think it introduced a lot of people to running their own nodes, so it's really awesome. Yeah, they did a pretty good job um, on, especially on the software side. The hardware is pretty basic, um, uh, you know, at some point you'll probably want to replace it with something else, but the stuff, you know, but that's down, that's longer down the road. But the software is, you know, it's great. It's very friendly and it really helps people get on board, which is really nice. Yeah, I guess that's what it's all about right now. User experience and helping anybody to be able to become sovereign. Yeah, yeah. One of the great things is that I think it really helps um, the conversation around it. So... Um, it's not necessarily, in my opinion, it's not necessarily that running a node is that difficult or impossible, but people didn't even understand, A, that it's an option, B, that why you should be doing it, and what are you risking if you're not doing it. Um, that's something that people didn't use to talk about, like, I, I don't know, even a year ago. So, um, so, I mean, some people talked about it, but I think that a lot of the, a lot of the community was oblivious to the idea. And, and these days we see a lot more people talking about it and figuring out ways to make it easier and to educate people on why it's important, which is, um, you know, it's a very big deal because once you understand why you have to do it uh, and why it's helpful for you as a, as a user, uh, you're much more likely to go through the difficulties of setting things up, which are not terrible, you know, it's doable. Um, you just need to, to do it. So you need to understand why, you, why it's important. And in 2017 uh, and 2018 and the crazy, crazy bull one that we had, people, you know, a lot of people joined and had no idea how Bitcoin works and what it does and what it enables them to do and what's expected of them in order to make the best of it. You, know, you, you don't just buy Bitcoin and send it to some mobile phone wallet and, and, and you're fine. You, know, you need to you need to know how to keep your sovereignty, as you say. Um, it's not, you know, it's not necessarily trivial, and it usually requires some level of understanding. People have to get involved and understand what's going on. Um, so yeah, I think Casa and other products like it 
um, really help people to kind of understand that this is even a thing that they should pay attention to this. So that's awesome, I think. Yeah, I think it's incredible, but the price tag so far is kind of high. I'm not sure if oh, yeah. the average person buying $100 worth of Bitcoin will be interested in running their own node, which costs $300 or even buying a hardware wallet, which costs about the same amount that they own in Bitcoin. Yeah, yeah, I fully agree with you. Um, there are cheaper solutions. So um, uh, there's Pierre Richard's um, node launcher, which is great. Um, you know, it's, it's this small, simple little tool um, that just makes every scary little thing about running a node kind of disappear. Um, it kind of holds your hand and follows you through the process and helps you do whatever you need to do with the hardware that you already have um, and make it look much less scary than it used to. Um, so, you know, people can do it with whatever they already own, which is awesome. Um, and, and yeah, you, you know, if someone buys $5 of Bitcoin, maybe the first thing he's going to learn about is not full nodes. But then again, you know, I think um, if you want to get into Bitcoin, it's important to understand that your journey doesn't end when you, you know, you transfer some money to Coinbase. Um, you, your journey just maybe starts there and hopefully it starts before there with you researching about what Bitcoin is, how it works and how it helps people like yourself and other people. Um, and along the way, Hopefully, you understand the very important role that full nodes have, um, and that owning a full node has um, on on uh, in independence of the users. So, you know, I don't know if this it's the first thing that people learn about, but it definitely should be one of the earliest things. And hopefully, when a user finishes the research and they, you know, they reach a conclusion that Bitcoin is a good fit for them and it's useful for them and that they want to make, uh, maybe they want to make a, a more serious financial commitment over time, maybe, then they, I hope they definitely will consider how they fit the full node into their uh, strategy and into their uh, uh, use of Bitcoin, because um, it's very important. It helps to learn, too, and helps to understand what Bitcoin is, and also as an investment, right? You, you should understand your investments. Um, so, you know, it's helpful in any way imaginable, I think. I also think that when you want to run your own node, it's useful to have a separate device as, okay, it's convenient to have it on your everyday computer, but it takes up a lot of space on your disk. And it doesn't have to, I mean, you can, you can set it up to, to pruning and then, you know, we're talking about around five gigs of space, which is I think made tenable in most laptops. Yeah, but so it doesn't if, have if you to want to be really useful to the network, then you should be running the full node. Um, yeah, so, so, okay, so here's the thing. Um, so when we're talking about why you should run a full node, um, one of the reasons that people bring up is to use bandwidth to support the network and to, you know, to send blocks to, to new users. So if someone joins and, and start their own full node, then you can you keep all of the old blocks and you can send it to them. Um, I don't think it's that important. You know, first of all, I, I, don't, I don't think we should depend on volunteers to do that. 
And happily, we don't have to because bandwidth is pretty cheap. You know, if you want to get a server on Amazon that does this, it's going to cost you like, I don't know, $10 a month and you can serve a lot of users this way. Um, so it's not really a problem. And, and you don't, you know, you don't have trust issues there. It's not a problem to let Amazon and, and other companies run that because there are no trust issues involved because every user validates everything when they get it. So it's okay. Um, what's more important uh, for end users, the reason I think end users should run full nodes um, is not voluntary. Um, it's, not, you know, it's not about volunteering your bandwidth. It's about um, keeping your own funds safe. So if you, you know, if you buy Bitcoin from an exchange and you get it, you send it to yourself, your own wallet, you want to know that you were actually sent Bitcoins. You want to know that they actually sent it and that they didn't cheat you. And if you buy it from someone uh, that you don't know on the street, you want to know they didn't cheat you and so on. Um, if you get, if you receive Bitcoin payments because you, you know, you, you, um, you, you offer services or products in return for Bitcoin payments, then you want to know that your clients um, paid you with real Bitcoins. And the only way you can do that in a way that is independent and secure and that respects your privacy is by running your own full node. All the other ways, um, they leak privacy information and they, um, um, they, they basically trust someone else. So, and that's kind of what we want to avoid. So, and, and I think the worst thing is that most people don't understand that they're trusting someone else and they don't even take it into account and they don't mitigate the risk, mitigate the risk that comes with it. You know, they, they think that the Bitcoins are just magically there and they don't even, they don't even look into protecting themselves. So if you use a full node, you don't have to worry about any of that. And it also, it's also great for respecting privacy. Um, because you don't have to query um, outside uh, servers and ask them how many Bitcoins you received. You just ask your own full node. So no one knows, you know, no one knows what, what addresses you care about. So a full node is a much better experience for uh, Bitcoiners, both in safety and in privacy. Um, that's why I think people should use it. Um, the bandwidth part, I think it's less important. It's nice. If you can do it, it's great but it's less important. So if, if the reason you're not running a full node is because you don't have space, then you know, by all means run a, a pruned node and only keep like the last five gigs and, and that's fine. That's uh, much better than not running one at all, for sure. Yeah, and I guess disk space is pretty accessible these days. Anyone can find five gigabytes. Yeah, yeah, five gigs is I think very reasonable. You, you still have to download the whole thing at the first time, but you don't have to keep it. So, so it's better. I just realized I was checking Twitter while you're talking and noticed that there was a massive hack in Coinomi, which is a cryptocurrency wallet which supports oh, yeah. multiple assets. And they were sending the, the seed phrases of your private key to Google API and they suspect yeah. that some kind of employee from Google has stolen the money from some users of the Coinomi wallet. And I think this is terrible. <laughs> yeah. We have all these wallet services that you can download on your phone and they are very convenient, very easy to use. You just download them and they generate a wallet and you send your funds to them. You believe that they are really secure and trusted and you're just fine. 
Yeah. And then yeah. I guess they have one way or another to make some money. Yeah, it's, you know, Coinomi, first of all, Coinomi is not even an open source wallet, which I think this should be a huge, huge warning sign to anyone. You know, if, if your wallet is an open source, I don't understand how, how you can use it. You know, it's, um, it's because being open source means that other people can audit and review the code and hopefully find some of the bugs, not all of them, but some of the bugs that, that are surely in there. And also it means that people can't hide terrible things on Porpoise. You know, they, they can't just, uh, if, if they do something wrong, it will be there and everyone will be able to see it. So, um, and Coinomi is an open source. Some other wallets are also not open, open source. And I think if, you, if your wallet is not open source, it's, uh, it's dead on arrival. Don't use it for whatever reason. I, I don't care if it's easier, uh, if it's prettier, whatever. Don't, don't do it to yourself because you're basically trusting someone else. And why would you give those people your trust? I mean, do you know them? Do you, uh, are they your friends? I mean, what, why would you trust them at all? You're not paying them, you know? So why are you trusting them? What, on what basis are you trusting them? You're not even a, a customer. So that's one thing. Um, what happened in particular here, and I think, I think it's desktop only and not the mobile version, but I'm not sure. Um, they use, I think they use Java on the desktop for some things, and they use some Java framework, which uh, automatically submitted anything that's on, on a text form, on a form that you type into. Um, it was submitted to uh, the spell check APIs of Google. So because it's just the default of the framework that if you have a form, then probably what you're typing is, I don't know, something that you're going to send someone, so you're going to want to have a spell check on it. And this is the default, and the developers of Coinomi didn't turn off the default because obviously in a, you know, where you type your seed, you don't want this to be spell checked, obviously. Um, and they just forgot to, to turn it off. And, you know, if this was open source, then maybe someone would have noticed it before. Um, but also, it's just, you know, it, it's, it's very sad that they missed this. <laughs> it's not something that you should miss. It's something that you should take a lot more seriously. Um, you know, it's kind of disappointing. Um, but it's only true when a user would input their own seed into the wallet. So if you just create the seed and, and didn't restore it, you know, you, you created a seed, write it on a paper and keep it in your uh, safe, then you should never type it and then it should never have happened. But if you restore the seed into Koinomi, then it probably happened to you. And then at that stage, it was sent to Google for spell checking. And if it was sent to Google, you can assume that it is probably in the logs, you know, the, the logs that Google servers keep and probably some Google employees or contractors have access to that. Maybe, you know, some external um, people who are somehow involved with the spell check uh, program have some access to that. So it's possible that someone uh, affiliated with Google in some way might have found this and used this to steal the funds. Um, one thing that's particularly disappointing, though, in my opinion, is the way that this uh, bug was disclosed, the way it was announced to the public. So... There was this person who apparently used Coinomi and he, he claims that 
the funds that he has were stolen this way. And then he looked into what could be happening and found this bug. So first of all, you can't be sure what exactly happened there, but you know, that's what he claims. And then he started to discuss it with Koinomi and he wanted Koinomi to pay for the funds that he lost and they did not agree. And he kind of threatened them that if they don't agree, he will publish the details and that's about the bug. And that's what he did. Um, which is, you know, if he really lost funds and I can understand why someone would be annoyed about it, but you need to also think about the people who are affected except for you, except from you. Um, you know, if you, if you publish this bug and everyone hears about it, then, you know, let's say you were, someone is an ex ex employee in Google and he was just fired last week, but he still has all the logs on his laptop. So now that he's hearing about it, he's going to search through, um, the logs that he still has to find the uh, private keys and, and steal them. And if the disclosure was, you know, submitted more uh, responsibly, then, you know, uh, probably some people would be saved from losing their funds because they would have time to move funds before the details were exposed. So this is kind of unfortunate. And I hope that people don't take example from this. This is not the way to disclose a bug. You know, you, you don't want to run off to Twitter and, 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 and Reddit and whatever and scream, uh, the details of the of the vulnerability before people have a chance to try to protect themselves. You should first warn the people that might be using Coinomi that they can, you know, that they move their funds and only later expose the actual details. And it's too bad that not Coinomi and not the person who discovered this did it in a responsible way, which is very unfortunate. I hope that people don't lose money because of this. <coughs> And when you think about it, there are so many wallet options that are not Coinomi. You have Jax and Exodus and lots of options that are not open source. And there is no way for you to check or to be able to tell if they yeah. are very secure. You just rely on the reputation of a company which claims that they have never had incidents. Yeah, yeah. Um... Yeah, there are quite a lot of closed source wallets. And, you know, if someone's listening to this and you have a closed source wallet, please, please stop using it. <laughs> you know, tell the developers of that wallet that you only use open source wallets and move to an open source wallet until they, you know, until they comply because it's just not secure. It's just not safe. It's just not safe and it's not worth it just because it maybe supports a few more coins or because it's a little prettier. It's not worth to lose your money over this so yeah i hope people use this as a warning sign so what kind of wallets would you recommend as in you can name a few for both desktop and mobile yeah um so if you really want to do things right um we just talked about using your own full node so you can you know you can use your own full node as a wallet um it's not the most friendly and um, some things like backing it up is, are a little difficult. It's going to get better because um, in future versions of Bitcoin Core, you're going to be able to use your uh, hardware wallets like Trezor and Ledger and connect them to Bitcoin Core. So you get the best of both worlds. You have um, private keys pr protected by an easy to use hardware wallet while you use uh, Bitcoin Core as the software which respects your privacy and um, you know, uh, respects your security too. So that's a good option if you're like very advanced. Um, if not, then I think that 
Electrum is a pretty good wallet. Um, you know, it's, it has a very good reputation. It's open source. It's been around for a very long time. It has great features, but it's not too difficult to use. Um, and you can use it, you know, both as a software wallet or you can connect your Trezor and Ledger, whatever, and then you get Hugo Wallet security. So it's great. Um, it's available to on Android too and also on desktop. Um, and one great thing about it is that you can connect it to your full node. So if you have a full node running on, you know, a Raspberry Pi at home and you have Electrum on your Android device or on your um, laptop, then you can connect the two. So your Electrum uh, client uses your full node for privacy and for security. So I think that's the best of both worlds. It's still a little difficult to set up, but you only have to set it up once. And once you do, you have like a very, very robust solution. So yeah, I think it's, uh, it's a great way to use a wallet. And that's what we help people do with the full node workshop that we did in the Bitcoin embassy in Tel Aviv uh, last week that we spoke about in the beginning. So yeah, that's definitely the, the best setup, I think, for most users, if they're willing to do the the configuration bit that is one time. What about mobile wallets? Because I know that probably the most popular version or implementation is the Samurai wallet, which is only available on Android. Yeah. But what um, if you have an iPhone? Yeah, so, so Samurai is pretty good on Android. Electrum is also great on Android. Both of them are good wallets. Um, for iOS, um, there are less great options, unfortunately, right now. Um, well, I don't know. I think there's, a, there's Edge Wallet, which is open source and supports a few coins. And it can also connect to Electrum servers if you want. Um, so it's not bad. Um, I think there's also, uh, um, well, there's Green Address by Blockstream, which is, um, it's a whole other thing because it's also a multi-sig wallet. So it's a little bit more complicated. And I think they, they're working on new versions for Android and iOS. So the current versions are not very friendly, but the newer ones should be better. Um, but yeah, iOS is, not as great uh, with with regards to wallet options as uh, as Android is. Um, another option is to use a, a Lightning wallet. So you can use something like uh, Zap on mobile. Um, and if you do that, it supports both Lightning and also normal Bitcoin transactions. So it's also a little difficult to set up because you have to have a node um, at home that you connect to. But once you have it, um, you can kind of manage everything from the Zap mobile uh, wallet and you get both normal Bitcoin transactions and Lightning transactions. So it's uh, maybe a nice trade-off. Yeah, it's kind of ironic when you think about it because Android is mo more susceptible to get malware and get infected than the iOS device. And it has many more points of failure in terms of you can connect an SD card to hack the software and it's much easier to meddle with the operating system. Whereas in the case of iPhones, I know that they even had that issue with the FBI, which was unable to crack the security. Yeah. They needed the assistance of the company. So I guess as a device in itself, the iPhone is more secure to store your private keys. 
but the App Store is less friendly with these applications. It's more um, authoritarian, to call it so. Yeah, yeah, well, I'm, it's true. I'm not sure that's the reason, though. Um, you know, in the past, uh, Apple would not allow Bitcoin apps in the App Store, but that was a long time ago. I mean, they, they've been allowing Bitcoin wallets for years now. Um, it's just that not, you know, not a lot of developers necessarily picked up the gauntlet. There's, there are some apps available. I'm just, uh, you know, I think Android has better wallet apps right now. Um, you know, I know that Samurai is working on uh, an iOS version, so that should be great once it's out. Um, Electrum, unfortunately, I don't think anyone's working on an iOS version um, for it. So, yeah, but... Yeah, hopefully with time, uh, iPhone users get some options too. I mean, they have options right now. Don't get me wrong. Um, I just think Android has better wallets. You know, I'm actually thinking right now, and it's a thought that I have been having for more than a year, I guess. You look at these cryptocurrency projects and you see actually Bitcoin projects. And you see yeah. how they get a lot of funding and there's a lot of money flowing into the space. But it, it doesn't really look like people invest too much in user experiences and promotion and, you know, stuff like this, which makes products friendlier and more accessible. Yeah, and it, I think it makes sense um, because it's not that easy to make money that way, you know, just if you just make a wallet and make it very friendly and it's open source um, and you release it, how, how are you going to make money off of that? Um, so, I mean, you know, during the, the bull run of, of 2017, people had, you know, like shapeshift integration inside the wallet. So they, they could, uh, you know, they got some affiliate fees when, when people converted between coins, but that's not sustainable. I mean, I don't think people are going to, continuously switch between coins uh, multiple times a day for this to be um, a very profitable strategy for wallet makers. Um, so, you know, it's not, it's not very clear how people make money from uh, wallet development. I'm actually, you know, I'm optimistic about what Casa is doing um, because they, they're trying to make commercial product that they can charge people for. Um, in order to use in uh, in their mobile devices, and that you know, I think that makes a lot of sense. If you want to keep, you know, if you want to keep your coin safe and you're not very technical and you want an easy way to do it, then you pay some company to do it, and you should want to pay them because if you pay someone and you're their client, then you can expect to get a better service than someone who gives it away for free, um, because then you're the product, right? So if you, you know, if you want to protect significant funds, you probably want to pay someone to, to protect you. Um, so I think that's an interesting model. I'm, I'm optimistic about it. And there's also the open source model, which, you know, most of the times doesn't produce the most user-friendly software, maybe because developers, you know, they want to solve the problem. And then after the problem is solved, they, they're less interested usually in making it look nice. Um, but whatever the reason may be, you have the open source product. So if that's what you want, uh, and you want something that doesn't cost you money, but requires you to be more involved, then you can use that. And if you want someone else to do it for you, then you have options to pay for the service. 
And I think this makes a lot of sense too. So I think that if we get a good ecosystem that combines both these options, then we'll be in a very good place. So yeah, I hope that this is where we're going, hopefully. I think we should get to a slightly more political discussion. And I should ask you where you see Bitcoin 10 years from now in relation to governments of the world. Do you think that they will be more, I don't know, open and friendly about Bitcoin or will they become oppressive and protective of, of their own currency and see Bitcoin as a threat? Um, I don't know. <laughs> I don't like making predictions. I really don't know. Um, it could go either way, I guess. Uh, I think some people believe that Bitcoin is like this huge threat to governments. Um, I, I don't see it exactly that way. I think I see it more as a competition than a threat. You know, um, people uh, might choose to use Bitcoin uh, instead of fiat currency for some things. And maybe something, some people may choose to use it for all things, but you know, it's not going to replace it. And having a competition is going to improve the way that governments work. You know, it's not that people aren't going to pay taxes anymore, um, but you know, governments will have to offer a better return for taxes that people pay, um, for example. And um, because they know that people who will be very dedicated might be able to avoid it. And also, um, you know, governments will have to um, offer better financial service services and, and, you know, support better financial services by the, um, by the open market and support competition in the banking sector. Um, because otherwise, again, Bitcoin could take away a lot of their business. So, so yeah, I see it more as a competition than a threat. And I hope that most governments will see it that way too. Obviously not all of them. Um, I think that, uh, you know, if a government is on, you know, on, on the verge of complete shutdown and complete, um, you know, uh, something like, you know, something like Venezuela and so on, um, then maybe they will push back more because it's kind of a survival thing. Hopefully it won't happen globally, but only in a contained manner. And then, you know, I think it will do, you know, it, it, I think it can be very useful to people who live in countries that are on the verge of bankruptcy. And for other countries, it can be also useful because people will have an alternative and they'll have a... a no competition to choose from. I don't think that we'll see Bitcoin make governments disappear though. I think that's, um, I don't want to even call it optimistic. I don't think this is an optimistic scenario, um, but you know, whatever it is, I don't think we'll get there, but I don't know. I don't, I'm not in the business of making predictions. I have no idea. Um, so yeah. When I usually think of Bitcoin, I see it as an invention of decades of discoveries in cryptography and computer science, which all took place in the United States of America. So hmm. I regard Bitcoin as an American invention generally, regardless of what nationality Satoshi had. If you hmm. look at the references that he had in the white paper, then you're going to yeah. find Ralph Markle and Hal Finney. And I, I don't think, I think Adam Back is British, but nevertheless, he 
he comes from that school of thought. And also Wei Dai with his B-Money, he also went to, I think it was George Washington University or something. So he's American. Okay. But if you look at Bitcoin and the way it works right now in world politics, you can say that it works against the agenda of the United States in terms of international affairs. And you see how people find ways to finance maybe Venezuela, which is under embargo by the United States. And yeah. they find ways to send money to North Korea or to Palestine or to all these countries, which the United States is not in very good terms with. And it yeah. makes you wonder at some point, like if this is just, the kind of world that we live in where you have a few world powers which control everything and make use of their leverage, then are we actually helping Russia or China by using Bitcoin instead of US dollar? Um, I mean, that's one way to look at it. Another way to look at it would be that it's also helping the United States um, realize that the times are changing and it's time to adapt. Um, and the earlier uh the, the u.s government realized that it's probably going to be better for uh for that government and for the people who live that who live there um so yeah uh you know it's not it's not necessarily a bad thing to you know kind of uh shake someone and tell them listen the reality around you is changing so um so yeah i think it can be helpful and I think that, again, offering some alternative to someone's point of view can help them and not just uh, bring them down. It depends on how you, know, how you choose to handle that. And I'm not American, but I'm, you know, I'm somewhat optimistic about the ability of the United States to adapt and to you know, make, make the best of any situation. So, so yeah. Um, could be good, could be a good thing for uh, everyone involved. Depends on how you react to it, I think. Usually that's what I also think, that by my personal involvement in Bitcoin and refusing to work as much with the government, I make it become more accountable and more friendly towards dialogue. Whereas yep. before the invention of Bitcoin, they were holding a monopoly in terms of finances. So when you have an option and there's competition, it's usually very good and healthy. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, but let's hope. <laughs> we can hope. It's terrible when you think about it and you realize that you might be helping the kind of actors that you don't like. Well, I mean, when you're using uh, cash, are you, using, are you helping actors that you don't like? I mean, I don't know. When you're using, you know, when you're using Twitter, are you helping actors that you don't like? Because, you know, some governments use Twitter to try to affect uh, um, perception. So do you think that by, by using Twitter too, you're helping them? I, I don't think so. You know, it's, those are, all of these things are tools that we all use. And I, I do think, you know, what, what do we stand for, right? As, as, as a society, as a community, what, what do we stand for? What are we trying to do? I mean, we could shut everything down and then we wouldn't be helping anyone else, but I don't think this is what we want. 
So I think what we want, I think what I want is to, you know, to have the options, to have the options and to make the best use of them and to have them available for people for good, you know, and if you want to do that, you have to make it available to everyone. That's, that's just how it works. And so, and then the question becomes, are we able to use it for good more than we're able to use it for, you know, not good? And that's an open question, I guess, but I'm optimistic. I'm optimistic about it. And I think that the, you know, the benefits that we can have from this open uh, financial community is much better than, or much more important than, the way that some people may use it for uh, criminal activities and so on. Because, you know, criminals will do criminal activity. It's not because of Bitcoin, you know, they'll do it because they, that's the, the, the line of work that they chose for themselves and they make it work. So that's what they do. And, you know, I'm not gonna, I don't think we should limit ourselves and limit the way that we, we're able to transact with each other just because maybe sometimes people will use it for other things. You know, that's, that's just how the world works. It's on us to show that, you know, you can do good with those things. That's the, yes, that's the point. I, I completely agree. And I think that it's our responsibility as individuals acting in this large scale economic experiment to portray the good side and what can actually be, be done in a very ethical way of improving what we have and bringing something which is beneficial to the current financial system. But we should not allow that side which involves Lambo bros and people who want to go <laughs> to the moon and criminals and everybody who portrays a very distorted image of what it's all about take over the narrative and even though the media yeah. loves these people and they love presenting the exceptions and yeah portray them I mean, as a rule yeah i mean I, I guess the nice one of the nice things about bitcoin is that we don't get to allow or disallow anything you know people people will be attracted to whatever they want to and the media will write about whatever it wants to and that's that's fine, and Bitcoin should be able to support all of the possible use cases, even if uh, I personally don't like some of them. Um, I, I, I do think that it's important that Bitcoin supports all use cases. Um, I don't think that, um, I, I mean, I do agree with you that we should, you know, we should show more of, uh, more of the more interesting and unique things we can do with Bitcoin as opposed to just betting on, on shit coins and on penny stocks on coin market cap. That's for sure. Um, that being said, you know, with things like money laundering and people buying drugs or whatever, um, you know, I don't think, I don't think we should take too much of an effort of, of kind of fighting this narrative because it's just, it's, it's just such a small thing, you know, money, money laundering and terror financing with Bitcoin is probably very, very, very small, very insignificant in a global scale uh, compared to people using cash or just using wire transfers or whatever. Um, so it's mostly FUD, at least at this point. So, you know, I don't think we should pay too much attention to that. Just, 
some some people like to generate fat and that's fine uh, we should waste too much time on that i think and i think it's useful to have these positive expectations and thoughts as a way of ending this interview <laughs> as, yeah we have been speaking for over an hour and a half and that's more than a lot of people will be willing to listen to according to my experience <laughs> yeah for sure but i'm very happy that we had to do these kinds of discussions and i don't think we had much of a debate just because we agree on so many issues yeah we, we agree on too many stuff too much stuff that's dangerous <laughs> that's problem <laughs> yeah but it's a, it was a great talk so really thanks for having me thank um, you very much can you please tell the audience who is still listening at this point how they can follow you and maybe get in touch yeah so the best way to follow me is on twitter it's uh just it's woody vertimer on twitter and hopefully you'll have a link somewhere because i shouldn't try to spell it out um and yeah uh, my dms my direct messages are open i don't check very frequently but they're open so if you have something very important to say to me in private you can try that that's it really great so thank you for joining this and i look forward to listening to it when it's finally published great thank you thanks so much so talk to you later bye bye